Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Here we have the second part of our two-part series on Genesis and the Ten Words with James Jordan. As many of you know, we do online workshops throughout the year. These are typically six-week courses for two hours a week. And coming up, we have a couple of courses starting in the month of October. On October 16th, we will start our Theopolis workshop on baptism with Alistair Roberts. And on October 18th, we start our workshop on the ironic life in Shakespeare's Hamlet with Doug Jones. For more information about those online courses and for registration, you can find links in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy and are helped by this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan giving some further thoughts on Genesis and the Ten Words. This is work in progress for me, and maybe some of you will have some thoughts about this. (laughs) Building on what we did yesterday, that the book of Genesis has these seven sections, I'm suggesting that these seven sections relate to the first seven words of the Decalogue. Word Decalogue does not mean Ten Commandments, it means Ten Words. That's what the Bible always calls these in the Old Testament anyway. It calls them the Ten Words because they're more than just commandments. There's a lot more in the Ten Words than just commands. And what we saw yesterday was that a new generation comes out of an old situation. And what is happening is that God makes the heavens and the earth, and then the heavens and the earth generate humanity. And humanity falls into sin. And that fallen humanity, Adam, as it is coming into sin, generates the line of the Sethites. And the Sethites fall into sin. And that line generates Noah. And Noah's line falls into sin at the Tower of Babel. And so another generation forward is needed. And so there is a sense in which there is an evening and a morning that is just like in Genesis 1. The evenings come before the mornings as they seem almost certainly to do in Genesis 1. The world starts in darkness and then God says light. So evening and then morning. The evening of the third day, God has made the firmament. And then when morning comes, God does something else. The Spirit generates something else, which is the separation of land and sea and the plants. And then by the time that third day is over and the evening of the fourth day comes, because the evening comes first, that's what it's like. You've got firmament, now you've got land and sea and plants. But when the fourth day comes, God generates something new, which is the sun, moon, and stars. If we can use that evening and morning pattern, which I think is there, that will help us isolate certain themes relevant to the ten words. Or to put it this way, by the time you get to the evening of each period, you've got a problem. And that problem is a certain particular kind of sin. And that sin is going to be related to the first commandment, to the second commandment, to the third commandment. And then what God does next in the next generation is deal with that particular problem. That's the thesis I'm trying to explore. Either works or it doesn't. So that's what we're going to be looking at. So I hope that's clear enough. Um, I'll try to say it again. We have, let's say, third generation. These are the generations of that history is going to come out of a problem which makes it necessary. And this gives us the solution, so to speak. 
but eventually that becomes a problem again, and we have to have the fourth generation. And since this is the problem that leads to the third generation, is going to be related to the third word, so is the solution. And then as it matures along, we're going to have a problem that arises in the area of the fourth word, and a crisis, and then a solution. That's the thesis I'm exploring. And I think it works. It works well enough to be worthy of further thought. And certainly all I can do in about 20 minutes here is introduce it. So allow me to set this grid out, and then you can think about it. If we start with the introduction in the book of Genesis, which is the seven days themselves, the evening section is the first six days as a whole, and then morning comes on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath day. And that is the day par excellence. So we just go to the whole rest of the Bible, and the Sabbath day is the day of God. It's the day when everything is very good. It climaxes. So while we move from evening to morning on each day in a larger way, the whole thing is evening to morning when we get to the Sabbath day. And that would be the first iteration of this chronology. Now, the first evening, in terms of the first section, we have the generations of the heavens and the earth. And the way I've got this down is evening starts with that statement, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth and the creation of man. Of course, that happens in the daytime. And then I've got morning as the fall of mankind and initial renewal. It might be better conceptually to consider the setup of the garden and the commands of the garden and also the fall as an evening phenomenon and then God's renewal as the morning. Now, if we compare that with the first commandment, the first commandment says, I delivered you from Egypt, don't have any other gods before me. If we look again at the evening as I've got it, the command is given on the sixth day to Adam in the garden. Disobedience comes on the seventh day, the day of worship, when you are supposed to affirm the uniqueness of God and that you are not a God. As is the sense in which we are gods. We're made in the image of God. We're made in the likeness of God. We're supposed to grow in the likeness of God. Mature, older human beings in the Bible are called Elohim. They're called gods with a small g. But one day a week we set aside to affirm that we're not God. Only the Creator is God. You will have no other gods before my face. And that is ritually affirmed on the seventh day. And so for Adam to seize godhood without waiting for it is bad enough, but to do it precisely on the day in which he's supposed to affirm the fact that he's a creature and only God is God is even worse. Now, if we look at the first commandment itself and its context, or compare it to the first day, the first day we have darkness and then God said, let there be light. Well, now notice the deliverance from Egypt. We have three days of darkness with light in Goshen. The first commandment says, I am Yahweh your God who delivered you out of the land of Egypt. When did he do that? Well, he did it through all these plagues, but climactically, with the contrast between darkness and light, and light for the new people and darkness for those left behind. So I think that the first day associations here, the uniqueness of God, focusing on not having any other gods, not having any other authorities, is very closely connected with this section of Genesis. And, of course, I've done this before in Christ's Opportunity in the Christian Future, but here is just some additional thoughts. Now, if you look 
Deuteronomy is laid out in terms of the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 6 to 11 is the section that deals with the first commandment. It has to do with the covenants being made and then being broken and being renewed. That would be thematically similar to what happens in the garden. The covenant's made, it's broken, and then God kills these animals and puts skins on Adam and Eve and renews it. Can't go into detail. Move to the next section of Genesis. The next iteration is the generations of Adam, which is in chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, the line of the Sethites. Well, the evening before that is the murder of Abel by Cain. That's what makes this necessary. We have to have a new group of people because Cain and Abel are at war. Something new needs to be done. What is the command? The command is no images, no false worship, no false mediators. That's the primary meaning of the second commandment. There's only one mediator between God and man. There's only one God, first commandment, first word. There's only one mediator between God and man. That's the second word. There's only one firmament between heaven and earth. There's only one mediator. Well, the evening is the sinful worship of Cain and the murder of his brother. And the morning is the true worship instituted by Seth and Enosh, which initiates this new generation. At the end of chapter 4, Adam gave birth to Seth. To Seth was born a son, he called his name Enosh. And then at that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Public worship is instituted, true mediation. And then that leads right to this next section, the section that gives us the Sethites. Well, who are the Sethites? Well, the Sethites are the firmament. All of their lifespans are these astral numbers. They are the ones who are between God and the rest of the world as a human firmament. Why are they needed? Well, because the light is failing of day one, and so a firmament is needed. Day two, waters are divided by the firmament. Cain and Abel were together. Then they divided and are at war. There is no order. There's disorder. And I'm suggesting that the Sethite line is then set up as a firmament. So the first day where we have light is not enough. God saw the light was good, and it was good. But by the time we get to the second day, it's not good enough. There is light. Abel spoke with his brother Cain and told him the truth, and it wasn't enough. Cain murdered him. So, we have a second iteration. We need something more. We need a firmament. We need a group of people set aside to conduct public worship and to be priests on behalf of everybody else. And that firmament people, then, are these Sethites. So, that brings us to the second generation here, the second day the second thing that has to happen. I'm trying to uncover the logic. So Deuteronomy 12 and 13 is interesting. That's the second commandment, second word section here, dealing with no images, only true mediators. And what is it about? It's about the place of mediation in chapter 12, and it's about the persons of the mediators in chapter 13. Anybody who shows himself to be, you know, claims to be a mediator between God and man is to be put to death. Only the true mediators are allowed. And this is very similar to Genesis 4. You bring your sacrifice to the east of Eden, that's the place. 
And it's these Sethites who are the persons who are supposed to conduct it. I think that if I was spending a half an hour on each one of these, then maybe we could think about it. Or maybe this would turn out to be false. I don't know. It's astounding to me. Then on the third iteration would be the fall of the Sethites. The evening is their fall. The firmament is not working anymore. The firmament is collapsing. Instead of standing there between God and man, this firmament people is intermarrying with all these cute girls down here because they're pretty, and they're not lifting up God's name faithfully. It's a corruption in the area of the third commandment, which makes necessary the next day. we got to separate land and sea. Just having a firmament hasn't been enough. We need to still have one. Still got light. Still got firmament people. But now we need something else. We need a more pronounced separation, which is equivalent to the separation of land and sea. And the command is to lift up God's name faithfully. That's the third command, the third word. The evening is this intermarriage of Sethites, which corrupts the name they carry. They're the ones who carry the name. The morning is within this passage called the generations of Noah, which is the flood and his sons. Noah's faithfulness and deliverance through the flood, followed by reinstitution of worship in a new covenant, brings these things about. And I've already commented on what's there. Interestingly enough, the third commandment section of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 14, 1-21a, has two sections. One first law section says not to identify with the dead, which I think if we're making links, deep structure links, would be like those who sins drown them in the flood because God has called you out of all the people on the earth, which is what happened at the flood. Noah and his family were called out. Then interesting, the second law section is a list of clean and unclean animals, which is right there with Noah and the ark. That's where you find it. Then that turns out to be somewhat problematic. We have a failure of this situation. Noah comes to rest the evening of the fourth situation, but Ham attacks him in his rest. And this Sabbath sin now provokes an affirmation of the Sabbath concept. What does the Sabbath have to do with? Well, it's got to do with lots of things, but primarily it has to do with rule. The king is in Sabbath rest. He sits there with a glass of wine sitting on his throne, and that's what the fourth day is all about. The fourth day enthrones the sun, moon, and stars as rulers over the entire earth. So I've got down here, the land is failing. God sets up the distinction between land and sea to give a second. You've got the distinction between the firmament people and the other people, and that was weak. And so God reinforces it by giving a distinction between land people and sea people, and at Babel, they're mixing up. So we got to have something else. We need some stars. We need some rulers. We need some people who are not only going to be speaking the truth and maintaining a priestly witness, but who are going to do it by maintaining Sabbath type of worship. And that's what Abraham is going to have to do. Well, that's what the descendants of Shem are going to do. So that's how I see it happening here. In the section in Deuteronomy 14 to 16, interestingly enough, in talking about the Sabbath, and the festivals, it's all about the years, Sabbath years, and what happens in Sabbath years, bringing in the tithes at certain times of the year. And, of course, the flood year was the Sabbath year, so that's, I think, a good association there. Well, 
That's the fourth section. It has to do with Sabbath. Noah comes to Sabbath. Noah is the one who is going to give us rest. Noah comes to rest. And Noah is enthroned on high and given the right to do capital punishment. He is a star, a sun, moon, and star situation, a ruler. But that begins to fail too. We come down to Terah in Ur, and we come to the evening because we know that Terah has become an idolater living in Ur, and Ur means what? It means light. So the stars are falling here, and so we need another generation, and the life of Abraham is that iteration. The command is honor your father and mother. Well, Abraham narrative is all about fathers and somewhat less about mothers. It's about the mothers. I mean, what happens as soon as they get into the land? Pharaoh wants Sarah. It's an attack on the mother, the potential mother. Then we get Hagar, who is a kind of a counterfeit mother. And then we get Abimelech attacking Sarah, who is the mother. So mothers and fathers have a lot to do with this. Now, obeying father and mother becomes even more of a crisis in the life of Jacob, who has to choose which one he's going to obey. But the main focus on fatherhood as a theme is here in this section. We see that Abraham, just in terms of the narrative, the preceding narrative, the beginning of the narrative, Abraham honors Terah by waiting till he died before moving from Haran to Canaan. And then the morning would be the entire Abraham narrative. Link it with the fifth day, we have swarms in land and sea. I'm suggesting the stars are failing in Ur. And so a gathered and obedient multitude is needed, which starts with Abraham. We've got the witness. It wasn't enough by itself, so we had the line of the Sethites, but they failed. And so now we're adding something. Each day is good enough for its time, but as history moves along, we need something more. What we're going to need more is a gathered and obedient multitude. And so Abraham is shown gathering people at terebinth trees and wells, gathering both Gentiles and himself, both land and sea, into obedient multitude, and it's thematically is there. And Deuteronomy section is about worship, and it's interesting how much of it's about worship as well as about submission to the leaders in society. Quickly, the evening of the next section is the generations of Ishmael and of Isaac leading down to the sin of Isaac, I would say, and in the morning section is the life of Jacob, the command. Sixth command is do no manslaughter, but Isaac's attempt to defy God's command, Esau's vow to kill Jacob are the evening section here. They are breaking this command. They intend to kill the life, the prosperity, the good situation, and indeed just plain murder, the one that God has chosen and set aside. So the morning begins when Jacob departs from home and comes down to his peaceful reconciliation with Esau, where Jacob becomes the man who wrestles. He becomes the exemplary man. Because the multitude is failing, the hero is needed, and Jacob is the hero. He is the one who wrestles with God as well as men and prevails. Ashley prevails in wrestling with God. Why? Because in Isaac, the concept of the gathered multitude of day five is failing, and so we need to add something else to it. Isaac started out good. The fifth day was good. God saw it was good, but by the time we get to the sixth day, the fifth day isn't quite good enough anymore, and we've got to have something added to it. 
Isaac does all right, digging wells, ministering to Philistines, but then how do you run the gathered multitude? Well, you obey God and give your property to the son that God tells you to. He fails in that, so now we need the hero. Jacob is the hero, the exemplary man, the perfect man, as we saw yesterday, of the sixth day. Look at Deuteronomy. It's interesting, the very first section in the Deuteronomy laws concerning the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, concerns the flight of an innocent man to a place of refuge. You'll have these cities of refuge. Well, that's just exactly what Jacob has to do. He's innocent, he's being pursued, but he flees. He's accused of a crime that he's not guilty of. What does Esau say? He says, he's stolen my birthright. Well, no, Jacob did not steal Esau's birthright. God had commanded the birthright was to go to Jacob. It was always Jacob's. It was Isaac who was trying to steal Jacob's birthright and give it to Esau. Rebekah was obeying God and seeking to get the birthright for Jacob because that's what God had said was supposed to happen. So Jacob is falsely committed of a crime and he runs to a place of refuge, which is exactly where Deuteronomy starts. I'm suggesting that Moses, reflecting on Genesis and reflecting on the Ten Commandments, as he produces his laws in Deuteronomy, partially is reflecting on the relationship between these narratives and the laws. And we talked about that a bit yesterday. Well, got to go fast. The evening section of the seventh day, the seventh commandment, is the sins of Jacob's sons. Starting in Genesis chapter 34, where they murder their brothers, their covenant brothers. Another part of the evening of the generations of Esau, because Esau is the murderous type, and Jacob's sons are behaving like Esau. These are together in the text. Jacob's sons are a bunch of Esau's. And in the morning, the true generations of Jacob, which is Joseph, this command for this section is don't commit adultery, and look at how it piles up here in this section of Genesis. The seduction of Dinah, and then the sins of Jacob's sons, who commit adultery in another sense. And they get all those men circumcised, which, of course, has sexual meanings. All those men become their covenant brothers, and then they murder them. So it's Cain and Abel all over again, but it's also in this area of adultery and destroying true covenant marriage. Genesis 35, we find the presence of idols in Jacob's camp, which is part of the problem that's behind this. Spiritual adultery has been going on for a number of years, and that's why these sons are bad boys. Then we have Esau. The whole of Genesis 36 is about Esau's intermarriage with the Seorites. Chapter 38, we have the adultery of Judah. These are all evening-type things. And then the Joseph narrative, where Joseph refuses to commit this sin and goes to prison rather than do it, and comes to Sabbath rest. Well, I'm suggesting if we just want a code word here, that the hero has fallen, and so the prophet is needed. The hero was great during his time, but by the time we get to the seventh day, the hero isn't enough. We need someone more. One last thing, we need a prophet, and that's who Joseph is. Deuteronomy, I've summarized it here. Then, let's just do this, and then we will not have to come back to it tomorrow for an extra ten minutes. What about the last three words of the Decalogue? I suggest that if we add the three falls of Genesis 3, 4, and 6 to the seven days, we come up with ten. Well, duh, that's true enough. Can we do that? Well, I think we can. I can. I can do it. I can make it come out any way I want. Yeah. 
Three and seven is, is that right? Okay, three and seven is ten, okay. Well, uh, the guy that majored in science tells us that that's true. Paul writes, this is where I think it's kind of interesting, and I would love to explore this more, and I asked Rich about it, but Rich had no thoughts and insights for me. I thought he would, so I don't know anything. Paul writes that he came to know covetousness after hearing the law. And I suggest that one dimension of this is that the narrative explication of covetousness comes after the giving of the law. We can find very nicely, thou shalt not steal at the beginning of Exodus, because Pharaoh has stolen all the children of God. And then you shall not bear false witness is what all the dialogue with Pharaoh is about. Bearing true witness, Pharaoh bearing false witness, the Hebrews coming out bearing false witness about Moses. Everything is about witness, but if you want stories about covetousness, you got to go till after the law and you find Miriam and Aaron are covetous against Moses in Numbers 12. And then Korah is covetous against Aaron in Numbers 16. And all your mimetic rivalry and Girardian motifs start to come up then. And that's why I thought that maybe I'd get some help on this, but I didn't. At any rate, this means that uh, we will now see Rich will be full of ideas and he'll share them with us tomorrow. This means we should look for narrative anticipations of the 8th and ninth words in Exodus 1 to 18 if we're going to try to make this model work, and I think it does work. E, I've got down there no nice literary breaks to help us here, so we must look at the overall flow of the narrative, which does break down into two sections. Now, we don't have any nice, these are the generations of, but we can still do kind of an evening and morning thing here. If we think of Adam stealing from the garden as the evening and God rebuking Adam as the morning, well, look at how that might be seen as playing its way out in the early chapters of Genesis. The command is don't steal. The evening situation is Pharaoh steals God's children from him in Exodus 1, 1 to 4.23, and that's the climax of it. 4.23, God says, Israel is my son, my firstborn. You stole him from me, now you better let him go. It's man-stealing, and man-stealing is, you know, the most important and serious form of theft. Not stealing an apple off a tree. That was most serious at the beginning, but as history moves along, man-stealing becomes the thing that is a capital offense in the law. It's what Pharaoh does. Well, immediately after that, Zipporah gives her son to God by circumcision. And so we have a reaffirmation of circumcision here in this context in which human beings are either stolen from God or given to God. And we could run circumcision back to the killing of those animals and putting the skins on Adam and Eve because in circumcision, skin is taken off, but it's also considered clothing. And it'd be, I mean, this is the ten hours on circumcision that you'd have to do to explore all of that. But it's very interesting how many connections you could make. Well, if we look at Deuteronomy, we've got the refugee law. The refugee is not to be returned to an evil master, but allowed to dwell in peace in the towns. That's just what Egypt refused to do by not letting Israel, who were refugees in their land, dwell in peace. And we could run some other changes on that too. The refugee who flees from Egypt and who wants to go back. Yahweh says, well, I'm not going to let you go back. You're going to stay out here with me, which would be another way of bringing a change. And Yahweh brings them through the wilderness and settles them in the towns and countryside of Canaan. Well, the ninth commandment, don't bear false witness to the detriment of your neighbor. The evening would be first Abel and then God bear true witness to Cain. Cain bears false witness to God and in the morning God separates Cain from Abel. He moves him out from the area, puts a mark on him, and institutes the Sethites 
as a priestly firmament people in between the Canaanites and God. Well, geographically, that's the case. Here's the land of Eden. Here's the Garden of Eden. Here is the forecourt land where they were dwelling and bringing their sacrifices right here to the gateway of Eden. And Cain is sent out here. And Seth is put here as the firmament mediatorial boundary between God and the rest of the world. Any converted Canaanites out there would be there. So the separation takes place. Well, I think that is followed out in the rest of the early chapters in Exodus here. The plagues are in a situation where God bears true witness to Pharaoh for Pharaoh's benefit, repeatedly giving him opportunities to repent. As God does the same thing with Cain. He says, hey, Cain, why is your countenance fallen? Man, do what's right. You'll be okay. Nothing bad will happen to you. Well, Pharaoh doesn't listen any better than Cain did. Repeated rebellions of the Hebrews against Moses, bearing false witness against him, would also fit here. And then the morning would be the Passover, which bears true witness to God, leading down to Sinai, where the law is given. And that is the ultimate witness, the witness or testimony from God. Interesting, if you look at Deuteronomy, the first law says, be very careful with regard to the plague of leprosy. This word plague is exactly the same word that is used in Genesis 12:17, where God plagued Pharaoh's household when he stole Sarah. It's also the word used in Exodus 11:1, 1, where God says, one more plague will I send on the Egyptians. This plague, it says, be careful with regard to the plague of leprosy, which was visited on Miriam when you came out of Egypt. All the language here, you look at it in Deuteronomy 24, and it's all the same language. Egypt is referred to, the word plague occurs there, and what was Miriam guilty of? She is guilty of slander or false witness. So there's a close tie with the plagues and with Deuteronomy. Finally, we come to covetousness, which is where I would like to think about this some more. There is probably something significant. I think it's somehow important that covetousness comes into focus after the coming of the law. Now, you've got covetousness earlier. This is what Rich and I were dialoguing about. He had some ideas that, I mean, his ideas and my ideas are so far out in space that we'll have to do this next year. Next year, we'll have a conference on covetousness and circumcision. That's what we'll do. There is covetousness earlier. I mean, obviously, Joseph's brothers are, you know, getting rid of him because they covet his honor. But coveting has everything to do with mimesis and rivalry because if you want that woman and I want that woman, we both can't have her. You can have polygamy in the Bible, but not polyandry. You're not supposed to have polygamy either. But two men don't usually share one woman. <clears throat> it doesn't work out that way, except in very perverse cultures, like Tibet. So covetousness is all related to rivalry and mimesis, and it seems that the Bible is telling us, Paul is telling us there in Romans 7, this whole order of things, as I've expounded it, is indicating that covetousness really comes into focus once people have heard the law. But what is the relationship between hearing the law as a whole and being stimulated to these mimetic, destructive, rivalrous relationships that Peter's been talking about. I'm unifying the conference here. Let's see what Peter said. The works of the flesh are all these kinds of oppositions, dissensions, rivalry, strife. You want to make a comment? I just want, the rebellion of Corey, he's 
objecting to a division that's instituted by the law between the priest and the Levite. Yeah. So it's the erecting of these boundaries that creates the priest as a, as a close group and the Levites is further out. So the erecting of boundaries is part of what stimulates the rivalry and the covetousness. So it is the giving of the law as a whole. And so the entire moral law considered as a boundary, everything that's accumulated from Genesis 1 to this point and is now encapsulated in the Ten Commandments, is a big boundary, and that has the effect of stimulating. That'd be one fruitful avenue, and it would tie with what you're doing in Galatians there, in the flesh, uh-huh. Yeah, I wanted to choose um, if the giving of the law of totality was, was clear in Galatians, actually, I think on Galatians, is that the law itself is the void of totality and power. The fall of Judaism. So Paul actually is coveting, is coveting what's the whole the law, the law. The law as perverted becomes one of the stoicheia, right. is that, and one of the principalities and powers. It's an elementary thing that is stimulating the flesh. Okay? Well, food for thought. Just in terms of this scheme here, back at the beginning, the Sethites covered the women of the Canaanites because they're cute. No, they wanted the cute pagan girls instead of the ugly Christian girls. And then in the morning, God wipes them out. The command is don't covet the wife or anything else. And then you look at what happens in Genesis 6. After it says they coveted the women, it says the world was filled with violence. Where does violence come from but mimesis and rivalry? So covetousness would seem to be strongly implied in relationship to this tenth part of Genesis, the seven days and the three falls, this third fall. In Numbers, the narratives come in numbers, and I've mentioned that story of Miriam and Aaron rebelling against Moses, covetous of his position, Korah. In Deuteronomy, these laws can be seen as various preventatives for covetousness. I lay that out in outline form in covenant sequences in Leviticus and Deuteronomy if you want more of it. But at any rate, this is just kind of put on the table for you. If I had had longer to talk, I don't think I could have said much more about it. Because, you know, it's a grid that had occurred to me, and I thought, hmm, this seems to work, so I'll share it. So I have done so. So think about it. And if it works for you, hey. And if it doesn't work for you, hey, it works for me, but it doesn't have to work for you. That's Jeff Myers. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.